Hey, Slava Connection listeners, we have another really interesting episode lined up for you today. Colin and I had a chance to sit down with Jordan Stephen Schur. He's a writer. Yeah, Jordan is a former social worker and educator who's written And Still We Rise, a novel about the genocide in Bosnia from Atmosphere Press. And that's mostly what we talked about, right, Lair? Yeah, we even talk about it in the episode that, you know, there's not a lot of discussion about Srebrenica. I personally only found out about it myself a few years ago. So this was a real privilege to get this information out there. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think everyone is vaguely aware of the phrase ethnic conflict in the Balkans. Like they understand this, but the extent to which it was a genocide is, I think, very sparsely known. So I think it's worth a listen and and hope you all enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, well, where are you zooming in from? Zooming in from San Carlos, California. It's in Northern California, in the Bay Area. It's perfect, sorry to say to you all in Texas. I did actually want to start off with your origins as a writer, because on your website, it mentions that you are a former social worker, former middle school teacher, but now you're a writer. What what inspired this career shift? It's easy for me to say burning out as a middle school teacher, but that's actually not what happened. As a social worker and even as a teacher, I always enjoyed writing. Didn't know what I'd ever write about. Didn't know there would ever be a passion, I guess, from overused word, but didn't know it would be a passion. And then towards the end of middle school, teaching career, it was becoming very apparent to me because many of my students were Latinx and and kids who were afraid that ICE was going to be visiting their homes and taking their parents away. And that really, obviously, it bothered me greatly and bothered me greatly what we're seeing in in that administration in terms of uh, demonization of of immigrants. Um, My own family background, my grandparents escaped pogroms. Jews were being persecuted and killed and villages plundered and the like. And my wife emigrated from Italy because of poverty in the early 60s with her family. And all those things had sort of been rummaging around in my head. And I decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna at least write about it. So I ended up interviewing 14 immigrants from different countries like Lebanon, Iran, Vietnam, Italy. My wife's in the book. My son-in-law's father from Mexico is in the book. And I interviewed two women who were children in Bosnia at the time. And so I wanted to tell stories and say, this is why people come to this country. It's not to murder, rape, sell drugs, et cetera, right? And they were very heart-wrenching stories. And these are people who live in this country now. And all of them said, we would not have come to this country if it was not for the fact that in our countries, we cannot live freely or, or live comfortably. So that started my writing. And I published the book in, it was 2019. It's called, it's on my website, but it's called Our Neighbors, Their Voices, True Stories of Immigrant Exodus. It was okay. I think it was okay written, but it really came from the heart. And I realized at that point, I want to write, and it's got to come from the heart. But it was the two women from Bosnia who were children at the time of the war that really started me on the journey that I'm on now. So the current book is And Still We Rise, a novel about the genocide in Bosnia. Uh, So, you know, I think at least personally speaking, in discussing the Bosnian genocides, it's not a topic that I was even familiar with until a few years ago, which is which is really terrible when you think about it. I only encountered it after reading Samantha Power's book when, when she mentions it. So it's all right with you. I'd love for you to maybe take a moment to discuss you know, the, the historical context here for any listeners who might not be aware of what happened in Srebrenica and in Bosnia. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, like you, I didn't know a whole lot until I started doing a lot of reading. I I watched documentaries. I watched feature-length films. I don't know if you've seen Quo Vadis Aida, but I hope you guys do because it's was um, nominated for Best Foreign Film and it has to do with the Srebrenica genocide. It's an amazing film. I've reached out to people really in Bosnia and other places in the world and here in the, in the diaspora here in this country to learn a lot. And I have learned a lot. My wife's family immigrated from Italy to Utica, New York. And so and we've been together a long time. But in the mid late 90s, early 2000s, go visit in Utica and her family and others are saying, well, you know, Bosnians are moving to Utica and they're fixing up, you know, these these buildings, they're fixing up the neighborhoods and they're moving in and, and they were welcomed. Uh, and Utica happened to be a city that welcomes refugees. So I didn't know much and I wasn't curious enough. And it was only until I met these two women that I started doing a lot of the research. So essentially, historically, Yugoslavia, uh, which formed after World War II, and Josip Broz Tito was, he was the dictator. There were different ethnicities and actually different republics, but it was really considered one Yugoslavia, and people considered themselves Yugoslavs. But they're all from the sort of the same ethnicity, Serbo-Croatian. Tito was pretty harsh, however, it, it became more of a democratic socialist state, and people could move about freely. There were jobs. There was, you know, adequate food supply. It wasn't like the other communist countries. But in the 80s, after Tito died, it began to be more tense. So Milosevic came along in the late 80s and was following, along with Karadzic, were demonizing Muslims primarily uh, as the enemy, as wanting to take our children, slaughter our women. I mean, that really was, the propaganda became uh, almost criminal. And so as the 80s, especially in the late 80s, early 90s, ethnicity and religion became much more prominent. It wasn't before that. People were Yugoslavs. In fact, I say in my book, there's a scene where a teenage boy is in Banja Luka and in his school, a principal comes by and says, you know, we want all you kids, this is like 1991 or 92, want all you kids to write your ethnicity down. And the boy says, I put Yugoslav because I don't know what else to write. And the principal says to him, no, you're Muslim. Because they didn't really think of themselves that way. So it honestly, and we see in all authoritarian regimes, the propaganda was quite heated. And there was a push from Milosevic for Bosnian Serbs to take back their land, to make Bosnia and Herzegovina a republic of Serbia and cleanse the country of, of Muslims and Catholic Croats. In 1991, the republics vote for independence. So Slovenia and Croatia, Croatia voted for independence. And that worried Milosevic who wanted to keep Yugoslavia together. They sent the military and primarily Slovenia was not much of a, the the Yugoslav army did not stay into Slovenia for very long, maybe 10 days, but they did move into Croatia and it was a sort of a protracted war. When Bosnia and Herzegovina voted for independence in March of 1992, by that time the writing was on the wall and Milosevic carried it, Mladic, a general. Uh, had already had plans that they'd started prior to, uh, quote, ethnically cleanse the country of Muslims and Catholic Croats. 
So that's, I mean, that's sort of the historical context. The, the actuality of uh, atrocities is it's pretty upsetting, actually. When you, when you consider, when you start reading about this genocide, something that almost goes hand in hand with it is the denial that comes with it, the revisionism that comes with it. How do you navigate this landscape of denial when, when you were um, writing the book? Right. And that was actually one of the motivators because I spoke to a lot of people. I have another book I'm working on too, where I've interviewed survivors of, I refer to the entire war as a genocide because it's ethnic cleansing was a Milosevic word and it's too sterile for me. But, I, but I've interviewed people in the diaspora here, five of whom survived Srebrenica but lost many relatives and the others from other parts of Bosnia. And I wanted to give voice to them so they can tell their truth. But the hardest part for them is, is the denial in Serbia by many, not all, and Republika Srpska, which is the entity that came out of the Dayton Peace Accords in 1995, the Bosnian Serbs, in a sense, got what they wanted for the most part. They got territory within Bosnia, which has created all sorts of political problems. But the people I've spoken with, and the, one of the missions, I guess, in my book is to so you can't deny what actually happened. And yet the denial does happen. Probably one, one of the more upsetting and difficult things for survivors is that denial and revisionism. So as my mission in the book... And I know at some point we can get into a little more specifics about the book, but one of my missions really is, or my mission is to to have through my characters, have them speak their truths. And it's a very authentic depiction of what happened because of, uh, you know, I've spoken with some people and I can tell you more about the, the guy I spoke with who was in two concentration camps and shared his stories with me. Yeah, well, I mean, let, let, let's get into, you know, the more the more specifics, because the way you write, it is very human. It's this very human narrative. It almost reads like a story. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, why you approached it from sort of that way rather as opposed to um, something that's a little, maybe a little bit more cr- uh, clinical, I would say, because you really put faces and voices to these stories. I think that thank you. And I think that's very that is very important. You know, I was a clinical social worker at one point. And that's something I wanted to avoid. I understand trauma. I understand PTSD. I wanted to include that. And that, that's, that's part of it. But this is a novel. It's fiction. But it's as close to being as authentic, not only for what happened in the concentration camps, but the aftermath. One of my characters is dealing with alcohol and, and, and substance abuse. Other char- another character is, is, is trying to um, cope with the fact that she was raped in uh, one of the concentration camps. And these are very real human, you know, responses to trauma. And so ultimately, in some sense, too, it was because I know many Bosnians, it's hard for many Bosnians to even speak about what happened. It's as hard to get support and help. It really is. There's a stigma about it, I think, still in the Balkans, especially. So part of what I'm trying to do is, in a way, give permission to readers who have experienced trauma, maybe in the war, maybe in genocide, or maybe in other parts of their life, that it's okay and it's necessary to get the support in order to be to heal as best you can and to be more of a whole human being. And I wanted to present that in, in the book. So there must have been so many details, you know, that you heard from these people that you interviewed. How did you decide what stays, what goes, what, what got left on the cutting room floor? Well, you know, I said, I, I, I've 
done a lot of reading and, and, and watched interviews uh, on YouTube and watched documentaries and lots of things. Well, I ended up finding this guy named Satko Mujic. And Satko was interviewed, it's like an hour or something interview in Bosnia. And I said, I got to reach out to this guy because I had learned about Priador, which is this municipality, it's like a county in Bosnia, where many atrocities and concentration camps were established. So I said, I got to reach out to this guy. And I, and I, Satko and I subsequently had many Zoom calls, and he told me of the stories of things that happened to him and his father in Omarska, which is a concentration camp in Priador, and Manyacha, which is another concentration camp near Banja Luka. And he, he said to me when we first spoke, you know, I, I'm not going to associate my name with your book if I can't believe it to be authentic. So I sent him my manuscript and he would write things like, or he'd comment, couldn't have happened this way. This is illogical. No, it actually happened this way. And he was incredible. He really was. And so he ended up writing the foreword for the book. And it's really very touching because he says in the forward, I would, I, you know, basically I wouldn't have associated myself had this not resulted in, in what it is now. And, and, and I'm very flattered and humbled. And he said, because it's fiction, but he said, this is the best truth-based fiction book on the concentration camps that has been written, which I was like blown away. But he was so instrumental in me being able to write about it. And, and, there's some really harsh stuff. I mean, concentration camps are not camp. And a lot of times it's funny because Sakka would refer to himself as a camper, which, of course, we think of camp. You know, we're campers, day camp, sleepaway camp, whatever. But there are scenes in the book that are I had to be very judicious and yet I had to tell it like it is. There's some very, very raw scenes of torture in the book because that's how it happened. I kind of had a general question on your approach to writing historical fiction, because your, your previous work, Our Neighbors, Their Voices, was based on a series of interviews that you conducted. What was it that drew you to doing And Still We Rise as historical fiction? And so, but what is what is your kind of approach to writing the historical part of historical fiction? Because so much of history is about contextualization. How did you go about forming the context for the story that you were creating or telling? Yeah, it's interesting because one of the two women I interviewed for the first book, I, I, I began, actually I wrote a, an as-told-to memoir. On, she wanted me to do that. Unfortunately, at the end of eight months of interviewing, she said, my family's decided we, do, we don't want this published. So, I mean, I was saddened by that, but I understood it because a lot of Bosnian people I've spoken with don't want their story told. And I, I learned in that interview that this woman's father was in Priador. In likely in a concentration camp, she never quite said. But I, I looked into it. I did a lot of research, and I said, you know what? I'm I'm very you know saddened that she doesn't want this book published. However, undaunted, I'm going to write a novel where I have more control over what happens, and I can do all sorts of research. Because there are many times when I'd be talking with her and say, well, I don't know if we want this in, or we'd have some lapses of weeks, or you know maybe weeks or a month, and I was like, oh, I want to get on with this. I figured if I'm writing a novel, I have more control over the content and more control over sort of the pace of things. Of course, then I met Sacco, and I had less control over the novel than I thought because Sacco would tell me, uh-uh, that's, you know, that's, 
it's too fictionalized here, or you're demonizing the Serbs and we can't demonize all of the Serbs. So I didn't have as much control, but I was thankful I didn't. So Saka writes the forward and a man named Hikmet Karcic, who's a um, researcher in Sarajevo, uh, uh, political science. I think he's also at the Global Policy Center in Washington. He wrote, it's called The Path to Genocide. So he writes the six strategic step plan from Karadzic, you know, the, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs and, and uh, Milosevic. So you have that historical context. So the rest of it can be more creating character to fit with what I learned and what I knew actually from Sacco, from my readings, from interviewing other people, that I could create these characters. And then the second part of the book after concentration camps is when they become refugees, or some of them do leave and become refugees in Croatia and um, Germany, and then Utica, New York. That is certainly from interviews and my readings, but it also is from my own experience working with people who've had trauma as a social worker or even as a teacher. So I was able to meld that. My writing was informed by my own professional and personal experiences. I did also want to ask about the cover of the book, actually. To quickly describe it, it's sort of this dark gray landscape. It's it's hilly, but there are flowers in the foreground that are they're very colorful. With Atmosphere Press, I've had a good experience with them. Their cover design guy said, you know, send me 10 examples, links to you know, examples and 10 of them of uh, covers you like. So I literally went to best covers of 2021, found things that appealed to me. And then he said, you know, come up with words or themes or ideas and send those as well. And I really did want to, you know, certainly it's a dark period in European and human history, but I, you know, and, and that has to be represented. And I think the darkness sort of in the background represents that. And there's some, I guess, reference Bosnia is hilly. It's actually mountainous. But then the flowers, which is interesting, because when I first got the design from the cover design guy, the flowers were wilted. And I said, you know, that's not what I'm looking for. I I really am looking for some kind of hope. Every Bosnian person I've spoken with literally speaks of what got them through the war, the genocide was hope. And now here in the diaspora and in the States, I wanted to show resilience. These are folks that are thriving for the most part, living their lives. They do carry the trauma with them, but it, for the most part, it has not kept them down. And I thought the flowers kind of should evoke some sort of message of, of hope and resilience. I think that really underlines that there's so much purpose in this book. You, you really kind of thought through every step of the way. So I guess overall, I, I wanted to ask what, what you're hoping readers will take away from your book after they read it. People have asked, well, who's your audience? And and, and really, as a, a writer, it can't be everyone. That's just too broad. So I've connected with a lot of Bosnians, English-speaking Bosnians, too. I don't know. I'm hoping that they will read. And like I said before, it gives voice. And many of the people I've spoken with say, I'm so glad you as a non-Bosnian are writing this, because maybe other non-Bosnians will, will, will want to read it because we know that a lot of people don't know about this. So sort of the first line of audience would be, I suppose, Bosnians, but I've also, um, there's a real strong connection to the Holocaust. And so I think people who are interested in understanding how that happened might also be interested in this. 
And we see genocides around the world still. My concern, and again, I won't get super political, but we saw in the last administration, we see it now, there is there is strong authoritarian leanings. And it is not impossible for me, having done all the research and reading and speaking to people and writing, it's not impossible for me to see that we could there, but for the grace of God, whomever go us, because we, it's no different, to be honest, from how it started in Bosnia. It's no different. And it's really worrisome. So hopefully people pick this up and they get that as well. They get that, hmm, we've seen this before. We're seeing it now. So yeah, I, I would guess those would be the two potential audiences at this point. I think there is an interesting connection between other genocides. Like it's hard, it's a, it's a hard thing to define, but they do, they all kind of look the same, right? Like, I, I don't know if I could come up with a definition of genocide, but I know it when I see it. Lara had said earlier that she first heard about this through Samantha Powers. I remember my first like actual exposure to this was um, through one of Madeleine Albright's books because she was connecting it to the Holocaust, which she had, she had, uh, her family had left Czechoslovakia before um, the Munich Agreement, but she had, was in Eastern and Central Europe around that time and saw the parallels. I, I just, I wonder why this one isn't as well known in the United States. Now, that's a very good point. And maybe that's another reason I, I'm, I'm so committed to this. First of all, I think genocide, there is a similar playbook. There really is. And a lot of it has to do with, which is why I get worried here in this country, with rhetoric, with falsehoods, uh, with sort of this drumbeat of lies. And eventually you get people who are buying into it and they're othering. And I think the playbook is pretty similar. Okay. But in terms of why it's not, was not, is not as well known. There, the UN, the US under Clinton, uh, Western European countries are really probably to blame for that because they didn't want to get involved. And what they ended up doing, their rhetoric until they could no longer be, until their feet were eventually held to the fire, was that this is long-standing ethnic conflict, that they're all responsible, meaning the Catholic Croats, the, the Orthodox Christian Serbs, and the, and the Muslims. They're all responsible for this, and we're not going to get involved when it comes to ethnic conflict, which was another, I hate to use the term, overused term today, but it was a big lie. That was not it at all. These were folks, were, there was something like 18% intermarriage in Yugoslavia before the war. People I've spoken with, I talked to a woman who's gonna be in my other book, and she said to me, this is a couple months ago, she goes, and she owns a cafe in, in Utica actually, and she said, you know, we had all sorts of people on our block, our neighborhood. I think she's from, I think she's from Mostar. But she said, and in fact, there was a Jewish woman across the street who taught me how to bake bread. I still use her recipe, right? There was harmony. And so the rhetoric and propaganda sort of made it outside the Bosnia. And I think people in powerful positions wanted to believe that it's ethnic conflict. So we're not going to get involved. Just let it happen. There's a great book I'm gonna to recommend to, to you guys. It's a guy named Peter Moss, M-A-A-S-S. And he wrote a book called Love Thy Neighbor, 1996. He was a Washington Post journalist. One of my favorite books. If you wanna read how this happened and how the world turned the blind eye, that book is, is to me quintessential. I think, I think that really you know, also highlights how 
valuable books are <laughs> like not not to like state the obvious but you know sometimes it's so hard to get someone to to pick up a book about something they're not familiar with and um it reminds me i saw on your website you mentioned that in terms of genocide as a whole if we wish to stop them we must understand them and certainly books are one way to do it but as, as you mentioned as well with disinformation that's so rampant these days and fact checking is by the wayside fake news etc cetera, etc cetera, it, it it's difficult to imagine people becoming more educated in a way about genocides. That's a very good point. It really is because, you know, I want for people to understand what goes into creating an environment that will result in genocide. And yet we're really so bombarded by, by a lot of things that aren't true. And, and, you know, we can only do so much. I mean, I see it as sort of the little part that I can play. And and if and hopefully people read it. Do I expect people in Serbia or Republika Srpska to read this? No, they won't. And I had a conversation with somebody in Bosnia not too long ago. He's a journalist, and he said, you know, people in Serbia and Republika Srpska are not not going to read this. You know that, right? And I said, of course I know that. They're revisionists and deniers. But I said maybe there'll be a few because there are activists in Serbia who actually were taunted when they were they were cheering on. Do you guys know about the? Um, New law imposed, at least for the Srebrenica genocide, that it's you can be criminally pos- prosecuted if you deny it, right? So there are activists in Belgrade who are praising that, and they were getting taunted and berated for doing that. Brave, brave people. But maybe some people read this book, maybe it gets into the hands of someone who might not, who's sort of on the fence about it, can only do so much. And I'm, I'm just one very small part in this. So I think the more people that are curious, and whether they read my book or Peter's book, or there are many other books, I put some resources in the back of my book for other books and other sources for people to find. I think that education may be the best way we can try to prevent these things. I mean, I, I, I want to add my own point of optimism here and that, you know, there there is that general saying or belief that if you meet even one person from another country that can they can change your mind or perceptions about that, they can inform what you thought about that country. And maybe in that same way, by having someone read your book, they can interact with these human faces that you presented and you can inform them that way. So I, I think I think there's hope here, especially, you know, as we are becoming more interconnected through through digital means and maybe this book can get out there. You, you never know with, with information where it can go and who could access it. So yeah, I appreciate that. And, I, I, and I'm telling you most, and believe me, I've spoken to many, many people, both here and in Bosnia and other places, and um, they still are hopeful. They're still hopeful that there could be change. Genevieve Perant, P-A-R-E-N-T, and she did, she did a study on denial in Bosnia. And you know, essentially came to the conclusion, and I have a lot of questions for her, but essentially came to the conclusion that, you know, maybe there is not going to be, you know, the, the nationalist leaning or thinking Serbs or, or just people who believe in the revisionist history, maybe they're not going to let down their guard, that it's going to be denied. But is there any sort of any movement, what is acceptable or reasonable amount of denial that Bosniaks and, you know, can can accept. And I just thought it was a very interesting approach. And she found that these are folks who maybe just have to accept that there's going to be this certain level of denial and move forward, because otherwise, in a lot of ways, the country's stuck. And, and one, of, one other thing, 
the Serb nationalists in this part of the propaganda presented themselves as victims. And in fact, the propaganda included they, meaning Muslim terrorists, that's all we're after. And since they pretty much demonized all Muslims, they are after your children, they're after your wives, your daughters. And, um, you know, we are victims. And we see that again in our current political system here, right? Situation here, not system. But also the um, those who survive, survived and, and lost, they are victims in a different sense. And one of the things that I present in my discussion or I've heard from other people is that we have to move from that victimhood. And it doesn't, it's not going to, uh, it, it's not going to help. It isn't. But victimhood is something, again, we looked at, we, you know, you're asking before, you know, how, how does genocide, what's the playbook? And I think that's part of it is the victimhood. I, I wonder how much of that is genuine sense of victimhood and how much of it is a convenient excuse. Like, I, I'm reminded of the thoroughly debunked, laughed out the door 1776 commission report which made a big point to talk about how the first colonists in Virginia and the local Poetan Confederacy lived in perfect harmony until the Poetan Confederacy, they claim, started the fighting, which is not at all true. But it is this kind of, you don't have to feel bad about what your ancestors did because they were provoked. So it was naturally justified. And therefore, all the fruits that were born by the subsequent events were, were righteous and justified. And I don't need to feel bad about it. I wonder, is, is the cart lead the horse for the horse pull the cart on victimization and narratives around genocide? No, it's an interesting point. When I was teaching middle school and I started a, um, I started a program with sixth, seventh and eighth grade kids, and there were some teachers, uh, it was called Campus Climate Committee. And really, we were looking to change the campus atmosphere to a climate of caring and kindness and respect and all that. And it didn't mean you're going to just, you know, I mean, assertiveness, but not anger. And so we did a lot of that and it really worked. It really worked for the five years we did this. And then, and then I left, I think it all went to pop, but that notion came out of, oh, and and there's an organization called facing history in ourselves. You guys familiar? You may not, but it's a great organization and they provide a lot of educational tools for anywhere from elementary to high school. Anyway, they were founded out of what happened in the Holocaust because of so many bystanders. And I think we were saying too, if you're a bystander, you really, you kind of just can let it happen. You don't have to take responsibility. And if you happen to be on the side in this case with, you know, in, in, in your Bosnian Serb or Serb, it's like, you know what, these things, we hear these things didn't happen. We were there, but we don't remember anything or we didn't get involved. We were just kind of living our lives so I, I, I think also whether when it comes to what you're saying, that, that sort of that bystander mentality is, I think, maybe wrapped up in this. That, that's also it kind of makes me think about education reform as well and, and, and like talking about where we start getting this information from, where these things start becoming ingrained in us. I know here in the, in the States and especially in Texas, we're facing a huge discussion about what is being taught in schools, what's being put in textbooks and how we're revising history that way. So is, is there a, a similar issue over there where, you know, the Serbs are being presented as victims just in the textbook itself? Is that like how it's written? Is that the, what they're being taught? That's my understanding. I've never seen a textbook in Serbia or Republika Srpska, but that's my understanding that that's it. they're taught. Somebody I interviewed, this kind of interesting guy, I interviewed this guy maybe six months ago for my, my other book, which will come out hopefully in a year or so, but I, I want to interview more folks. 
This guy actually started the resistance movement in Sarajevo. His nickname was Zenga. He was in the Croatian National Guard, but he's Bosnian Muslim. He said he would go, he goes back to Bosnia a lot. He lives in Boston. So he said from around 2005 through maybe 2010, he goes, I really had hope. He said there were, there were people were actually talking and understanding that these crimes really did happen. War crimes really did happen. I mean, the facts are there. You go to The Hague, you see the tribunal proceedings, et cetera. He said, but in the last maybe five, six, seven, eight years, he's gone back and said, it is, they're really entrenched now. So I have to imagine that this is why I have cautious about sort of the younger generation on the Serb side is because they've been fed these lies through their history, history books. And that that will make it much, much harder. So I appreciate peace building organizations as small as they are to get these kids together and say, hold it, let's forgive as best we can. And we need to move forward. But yeah, I think it's become really much more entrenched. So why am I optimistic and hopeful? I don't know. But I am somehow I am. I don't know why. Because I'm here in Northern California, not living in Sarajevo or, or, or Mostar or Visegrad and seeing what's going on there. I don't know. Germany does. They acknowledge the Holocaust and they move on, you know, not leave it and not forget it. But they understand that they were quite, quite wrong. I mean, I think that ties into the younger generation as well, where younger people are bringing in more uh, advanced ideas of mental health and seeking help and not having to suffer through something alone, like this idea of, you know, being tough and just sucking it up and suffering through it by yourself. Like this is becoming a much more vocal conversation that mental health should be a priority and that discussing these things and seeking help is not something that you have to do by yourself. There's a there's community for it. There's professionals for it. So that might change as well. Now, that's a good point. And that's partly, again, sort of why I wrote, wrote it into my book. I was at a conference a few months ago, ago called the Bosnia-Herzegovina Diaspora Conference. There's a group out of Chicago, the Bosnia-American Genocide Institute, and they also hosted this. It was a two-day virtual event. And I went to the presentation from a therapist in Florida, and she she calls her therapy Balkan Mama Therapy, which I thought was a great name, <laughs> Balkan Mama Therapy. Anyway, she is from Bosnia. I don't know how old she was when she came here, but she and I have had some conversations too. And one of her areas of interest is intergenerational trauma. And in my other book, I've so far had six younger people, you know, your, your age or so, who've written reflections about what it's like growing up in a household with parents who survived the genocide, but also lost so many people. And uh, that in itself is a really fascinating area, but it does speak to, and this therapist from Balkan Mama Therapy was saying, you know, I, I do get a lot of adult children coming in here wanting to sort of break beyond because you know, I can only imagine parent being parented by somebody who survived a concentration camp or you know loss of family members. It's it's going to be it's going to impact upbringing of their kids. So that's another really important, uh, I think, important area to look at because these are younger people, like you said, who are accepting of the help. It can only help them as they move forward, kind of uh, processing what their previous generations went through. Yeah, it's a slow process, like ripples, but eventually the ripples will potentially get bigger, so. That's that's the hope. You know, when I, I presented a couple of years ago in San Jose for the other book, and I 
there were 300 people there. It was kind of funny, really, because I was, it was their annual gala. It was an Islamic cultural center or something connected to a mosque. And they said, yeah, come and talk about your first book. And then, you know, talk about immigration policy in the U.S. and how is it that, you know, it's tougher now, but, you know, Bosnians were able to get in, whatever, or refugees get in. It was funny because they had, so they had me talking about this heavy topic. They had women dressed up in traditional garb doing dancing. They brought in a band from Bosnia. It was like a Bosnian wedding, but I got to talk about genocide and immigration. It was very interesting combination of things. But there was an Im, the, the grand mufti of this organization called the Islamic Community of North American Bosniaks. They're based in Phoenix. And he said to he said in a speech, mostly it was in Bosnian, so I didn't understand, but he, he translated for me and he said, we're a forgiving people, but we have not been asked for forgiveness. Pretty powerful, but at, you know, then the other hand is at what point, and maybe as the generations move on, and they were worried that they're losing younger generation, by the way which I think is happening in a lot of religions, I suppose. But this goes back to that Genevieve Perant article. At what point do you say, you know, they're probably not going to ask for forgiveness. So what, do we stay entrenched in our, I mean, it was horrible stuff they went through, but in our victimhood or how do we move forward? And I, I don't know, I don't have an answer for that, but it's part of the process of what I think these folks, these, you know, the Bosnian, Bosniaks are, are wrestling with. Yeah, maybe some bulk and mama therapy might be in order for everybody here. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleasure talking with you. Yeah, I, I really do appreciate appreciate being on here. And, and thank you so much for having me. We do want to also plug all of his books. His blog and information about him can be seen at www.jordanstevenshire.com. That is spelled Jordan Stephen, S-H-E-R.com. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. 